Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco, and drink. I'm Steve Ryder, and I am in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm at Mitch Smith's back porch and uh, having some cigars with Mitch and a new friend, Ashley Early. Ashley, welcome to the podcast, hey, dude. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So... We talked a little bit. We were watching the Clemson-Florida State game a little bit, eating lunch and chatting. So I got to a little bit, don't know a little bit about your story. So I guess the first question, though, that I always ask, what you smoking? I am smoking a Comfortably Numb, which you were kind enough to give to me. And that sparked a whole conversation about Pink Floyd and our mutual love for Pink Floyd's music. And to everybody out there that knows me, I wasn't watching Clemson football. It happened to be on at Mitch Smith's house. <laughs> I don't make a habit of watching Clemson football. So. so you grew up in Western Virginia. What I kind did. Of, tell me about your childhood. You know, Steve, it was a great childhood. Um, it's what I thought at the time was normal, but as I've gone through life, I realized it was not normal. It was exceptional. Mm. Sort of small town America. How small? Uh, Gosh, I don't even know at that time. Harrisonburg, Virginia probably had maybe 25,000 yeah. people. But I grew up out in the county, uh, first generation out of agribusiness. So I was around a lot of farms. The, the other really cool thing was half the community where I lived was Old Order Mennonite or Anabaptist. And generally the rest really? of us were probably two yeah. or three generations removed from that. Yeah. And so what was cool is when you would go to elementary school, you know, all the kids you had grown up with, half of them were old order Mennonite. And by eighth grade, then they don't go to school with us anymore. Really? And so there was this big split. But really? it was cool because you would, as they went and either worked on the farm or were homeschooled or in their Mennonite schools, you would cross paths as you were you know, and they were in horse and buggy. So we'd be out driving. Our, I remember at 16, there was this barber. So, so not... Old Order Mennonite is closer to Amish. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I would say most but, people... But, but would, it's not Amish? It's not Amish. They're both Anabaptists, but there's some difference between the two. Do you know any of the differences? I'm curious. Uh, no. I do, but I, okay. it's probably yeah. not spent a whole lot of time on it. But okay. the cool thing was, is growing up, all my babysitters were Old Order Mennonites. Again, all my half my friends growing up. And I didn't realize till later on in life how much that affected me and really how Protestant I am. How so? Until later. Just the way I think. Because uh, if you know Old Order Mennonite, I didn't realize we were going to spend a lot of time on this. Yeah. You know, they don't have instruments. They don't have stained glass windows. Everything is plain and simple. And it's being in the world but not of the world. And so how they discipline their lives. And again, grow, living in an, in an agricultural-based community with that being a large part of it. And again, about every kid is probably three or four generations removed from that if you're a secular kid. It just becomes part of you about your work ethic. You see my hat today. Yeah. I love this hat, but I can't stand labels on things. And so I tend to rip labels off of things. And it's, I think it comes from that, the idea of their notion of vanity or their notion of wow. your identity and tying yourself to a product or anything like that, that that's of the world. But it was a great place to grow up. My parents yeah. were wonderful people. I grew up going to a United Methodist Church, and I'm so thankful for just nursery and, and elementary school, Sunday school, because 
later on in life when things got really crazy and hard and I was needing a savior, those stories just, I had a deep well to draw from those early years and those wonderful people who were with us in the small community. I, it was interesting. I was thinking about the other day, my third grade teacher in elementary school was also my Sunday school teacher. She was also one of my mom's best friends, and she was the mother of one of my best friends. Yeah. So you weren't getting away with a whole lot. <laughs> um, but these people, you know, these folks were involved in every area of my life and knew me very well. Yeah. And so very thankful for that. Siblings? Yeah. I'm one of three boys. Um, You're the middle. I'm the middle. And the cool thing is, is my dad sold farm machinery, and he was gone Monday through Friday. And so my mom raised, a, and he was a wonderful man. When he came home on the weekends, he was all about family. He didn't go out, other friends, all that. He was about being at home, being with the family. So he was wonderful. But during the week, my mom had to raise three boys who were all boy. And she was just a wonderful woman, uh, so unique, just great sense of humor. I tell people this is a crazy story, but when we would go on family trips, this is just how my mom thought about things. It was brilliant. We'd load up in the old station wagon, and she would say, why don't you boys go in the back and wrestle? And so we would. The first 15 minutes of the drive, we'd be back there beating and banging on each other. But after that, we were so worn out, we weren't complaining, we weren't fighting. It was a peaceful ride for the next six hours or whatever. And I, looking back on that, I'm thinking, what parent does that? What parent has the, the guts and the, the insight to just tell those boys to go in the back of the old station wagon and let them wrestle it out? Uh, so the rest of the ride's enjoyable. But that's the type of woman she was. She was unique and special and, and just, she was made to raise boys, particularly three active boys. And um, just very thankful for her. Mm. So that's my childhood. And then you were an athlete in high school. I was. I wouldn't say I was a star at any of them, but I could play all of them. And sports was a big deal in our lives growing up. It led to some of the best friendships and the greatest memories, but it also led to um, some hurtful things, too. I mean, if you're familiar with, like, Eldridge's work and Wild at Heart and talk about the wound, mm -hmm. I would say my wounds didn't, and I don't have very many of them, they didn't come through home and they didn't come through relatives. They came through sports and through... How so? Well, the era I grew up in, most coaches wanted to model their coaching philosophy after Bobby Knight. And that works if you're winning. But if you're losing, that gets really old. And that philosophy, well, let's just get tougher, let's get tougher, let's get tougher. And that, that was great for a lot of kids. But for me, it got pushed to a point where it's like, what's the use of putting yourself through this and just being beat down, beat down, and you're not seeing success on the field? What's the co I'm doing a cost-benefit analysis, and I'm paying a cost, but I'm not seeing the benefit of this. And one of the things that happened is, again, I played all sports, and then I got into my junior year. The grades were awful. I knew I had to refocus if I wanted to do anything. I wasn't doing that well in sports, had a lot of injuries. And, and I quit. Just one day, right before practice, I just, Chris Campbell was sitting next to me, and I said, I've had it. He said, what do you mean? I said, I'm out of here. So having played football from age six all the way up, just one day I'd had enough and I went and quit. And I just remember feeling awful. Mm. And so then 
part of my story is, is I, I went to a military college where I met Mitch. I went to the Citadel. And about two nights in there, I was like, I've had I'm out of here. And I had a roommate. He said, man, if you quit this, you know you'll quit the next hard thing that comes along. Oh, snap. And I said, you know what? Wow. He's right. Wow. And I've already quit something. I remember how bad that sucked. I ain't quitting. I ain't quitting. And as far as I know, I haven't quit anything else in life. But that was so sports. It's weird. The biggest lesson I learned in sports was when I quit. And that's just not to quit, just to push through. And so, yeah. Now, you grew up in a Methodist church, but you really didn't have a faith at all. Or yeah, did you? I mean, or did it's, you? It's, or did you? it's interesting looking back because God has revealed some cool things to me, particularly recently, and I, I, really? I can get into that a little bit. So, uh, yeah, so I was around church. I was around Fellowship of Christian Athletes and church organizations or Christian organizations through high school. Okay. And I think this is worth noting. I want to acknowledge these people. Um, so you've probably heard of Mason Rudolph, who's quarterback for the Steelers. His grandparents, Jim Logan and Carol Logan, I went to school with their kids. And they were people that opened up their house to these high school kids to come in and have FCA meetings and would just share the gospel with us. Well, this is where all the good-looking and cool kids hung out. So I would go, not because I was so interested in hearing the gospel, but they just loved on us. And so I remember going to a FCA retreat in Broadway, Virginia. And there was this point where they said, okay, everybody close your eyes. And, you know, if you want to accept Christ in your life, raise your hand. Nobody's looking. And I had heard the message and it spoke to me and I raised my hand. And they said, okay, everybody, we can open our eyes. And everybody, you know, who didn't raise your hands, y'all go out and do whatever. Those of you who did, stay behind. We want to talk to you. And so close yeah. your eyes. No one's going to see. Everyone that didn't raise your hand, leave. Yeah. So we yeah, know what's going yeah. <laughs> Kids don't. Yeah. We still thought it was anonymous. It wasn't. But anyway, what happened is I was the only one. Yeah. And they came over and approached me. I said, no, 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 no. I, I take all this back. I thought everybody was raising their hand. So I totally denied. I totally said, I realize this is true. I can't handle the peer pressure. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And so went about my business. Well, then I'm in a church in college. My, my now wife, she was my girlfriend, had given her life to Christ. And God was working on me. And I was in this fundamental Baptist church. And they had the same thing where the guy said, you know, we're going to close close your eyes, raise your hands. And I'm like, I ain't doing that again. <laughs> and lo and behold, a guy by the name of Charlie Souter came up and grabbed me and said, you're coming with me. I said, well, Charlie, what are you doing? I didn't raise my hand. He said, I know you're Roland and Beverly Early's son, and I got something we got to talk about. I know your parents. And so he took me back in this office in this church and just told me I needed Christ in my life. I needed to give my life to Christ. Mm. They're like, wow. And so then, a little while later, again, at this point, I'd really made a mess of my life. How so? Um, just everything I touched was just turning rotten. I wasn't the person who I thought I was. I mean, I can tell you, you know, one of the stories is I was coming in late one night at the Citadel and just been out drinking and partying and just ended up 
behind the Indian Hill Mitch and just puking. And all of a sudden this moment of sobriety came and God spoke and said, is this who you are? Oh. Is this, is this oh. what you want? Oh. Like, I don't want this. And so I, it wasn't that night. A few weeks later, same thing, out partying with my friends. And this guy who I partied with, we came walking in. You, the Citadel is a weird place. You have curfews, and you have to be back at certain times, and you have to be in uniform. So we were always hustling back, putting our uniforms. So there wasn't any thought or any real discussion about important things. We were just trying to get back to campus. We got back, and we're coming in. We just had a, we'd had a, a, you know, a wild night. And he turns to me and says, you want to go to church in the morning? And I said, yeah. I that was the oddest thing for us to talk about. And I said, well, where are we going to go? I don't know where we're going to go, but there's this church over in Mount Pleasant that a lot of these guys go to. Maybe we'll go there. I said, well, come wake me up tomorrow and I'll go. And we did. And that introduced me to Buster Brown, who's still the pastor at East Cooper Baptist Church. Mm -hmm. And he was like the real first man's man that I saw that wasn't trying to sell me. So he was just, he just laid the gospel out there. And I was he like, was a guy. he's a Citadel guy. And it's like, wow, this dude has credibility with me and I'll listen to what he has to say. Yeah. And so then it was um, Easter weekend, 1988. And again, I've, God is starting to reveal this, is this life really what you want? Just was seeing my life with a different set of eyes and just how it was leading down a road of, destruction and misery and all this and I was in the shower and I felt the Lord said um will you give me your life I said man I I don't know I can do that I don't know I know it's a mess but I don't know what we're doing he said well I gave my life for you and it like clicked it's like you mean I get to exchange this life of crap that I've built, I'll hand you all of that, and in turn, you'll hand me these things that I've heard about since I was a little kid. This whole, I don't know what all it is because I haven't walked with you, but my sense is it's a lot, it's going to be really good and it's a lot better than what I've got to offer here. And so we made the great exchange in the shower at the Citadel, Easter weekend, 1988. And the weird thing is, I thought, okay, I understood the verse, you know, you got to be crucified with Christ, you got to die to yourself. So I just thought, okay, I'm going to be safe, but it's really not going to be that good. It's not going to be a lot of adventure. It's just going to be sort of this slow walk, boring walk to heaven. Dude, that's, that ain't true. He has given me such an adventurous life, so many good stories. He has done so many wonderful things in my life and given me so great of friends and experiences and everything I thought I was going to give up I, I didn't give up anything I got so much in return I'm just blessed 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 and so I'm just I'm just trying to live it out how can I glorify him and enjoy him the rest of my days so you finish college at the Citadel and you get into criminal justice right I did. You became a parole officer yeah, back, back, back in Western Virginia, near your hometown, in your hometown? Yeah, yeah. Um, moved back home after college and really didn't know what I was going to do. And 
I had volunteered my senior year of college when, after I became a Christian. I had volunteered at a homeless shelter. Yeah. Basically, we were providing security at night at a women and children's shelter yeah. just to give the regular staff relief. And when I got out of college, what I had planned for my life just didn't work out. And so I was left sort of trying to figure out what I was going to do. I was this new creature in Christ. I just didn't know what was up. And the only thing I knew is why I'd volunteered at this homeless shelter. Maybe I'll go. Maybe God's calling me to work with the homeless. So I can't believe these people did it. They hired a 22-year-old guy to run an 80-bed homeless facility. And I got in there, and I didn't like working with the community board and didn't know all that, but I loved working with the residents. And I wish I'd kept a journal because those are some of the wildest stories I had was working at the Valley Mission in Stanton, Virginia as the executive director, yeah. not having a clue. And one day a guy comes into the workplace. He says, hey, you know, we've been watching your work. We've got an opening at probation and parole, and we think you'd be good for it. And I'm like, I don't know you. I don't know you. You might have me. He said, no, you've been housing all our guys for the last year. So I didn't realize that I'd been taking care of all the people that had been released from prison and everything else, and that's who we were housing. And they said, no, we've seen that you've done a pretty good job. You care about these guys. And, we think you, and, and I had an aunt that worked in juvenile probation, and I have a long history of my family of law enforcement. And so they knew that. They knew me. And they're like, yeah. this." And so at 23 years old, um, they gave me a, a state vehicle and a badge and arrest warrants and turned me loose. And the cool thing was I was so remote where I was working. I was the only court officer probably in, I'll say, 100, 150 square miles. A lot of people don't realize it, but you had powers even above the state police and all this. And you could just, it was cool. Um, you're just tracking bad guys talking in community, find out what's going on, and them guys were getting released from prison, you know, trying to introduce them back. And for that age person and where I was, it was the ideal job. Um, and I worked for some wonderful judges and wonderful people. How so? How was it ideal for you? First of all, I think it got me out and moving. Uh, I wasn't stuck in an office. I felt like I was doing something important. That but was Well, you mentioned that... Um in our previous conversation, you're ADD. <laughs> so I can imagine sitting behind a desk would be very... Yeah, that, that, would, <laughs> that wouldn't go work. Um, yeah, and you're dealing with, you know, say you had a caseload of like 60 people. Well, each of them had a different story. Each of yeah. them had a different challenge. So if you got bored or whatever with one, you just picked up the next file and went on to the next crazy situation and dealt with that. So, yeah, I think, you know, it helped with the ADD part. I didn't realize I was really struggled with that until later on in yeah. law school. Just anyway, that's a whole different. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll, we'll get, get there. there. But so, yeah, it was ideal job. And the thing I realized, though, is I'd gotten married then and I realized this has been really good for a young guy in his 20s when I first took the job. I don't think I was married. But if I was going to settle into a family life, which is really a lot more important to me than the job stuff, it's like there probably needs to be a change because I can't continue working nights and doing this stuff. And so anyway, that created a stirring maybe to do something different. So let's talk about that story of uh, the judge talking to you. You start thinking about law school. Yeah, I don't know where the idea came from. Because I never thought it would be something that would be in my realm of possibility. I felt I was pretty lucky just to get through undergrad. But I'd been in court so much that I'd seen and got to know these attorneys 
and saw how they argued cases. And I thought, I guess I got a little bit of a flair for the dramatic. I was like, I think I could, I think I could do this. I think I could get up here and, and advocate for somebody. And I think I, or I think I could really, you know, I'd be really good at putting somebody away. Um, <laughs> and so um, I get up. It was so cool because I approached first my judge, and he said, "Yeah." I think that's good. He said, the closest law school that was in my area was Washington and Lee. And at that point in time, I don't know where it's ranked now, but it's a top 20 law school. And it's like the only law school that was really a possibility for me because I was going to be a non-traditional student, being married and working probably while I went to school, was a school that there's no way I could get into. And I remember telling Judge Bird that, and he's like, trust me. <laughs> It'll have, you do what you got to do and the rest will take care of itself or we'll help. He said, you need to go talk to, ended up being Justice Bumgardner, who was the chief judge. Well, I didn't realize it at the time, but he's sort of like the, the hero of that. He's one of the heroes of WNL Law School. He's like, yeah, I think that can, I think, I think we can make that work. So line up your interviews, do all your stuff. I said, listen, I'm really worried about the cost of this because this is a private school. This isn't a state school. And I remember him saying, listen, the cost of law school, by the time you get out, will be about the cost of a new Lexus. He said, if you do it right, watch your P's and Q's. And he was right. So at the end, it was about, the, and he was like, wouldn't you rather invest in yourself than a new car? And that was the first time I had really started thinking long-term investment I was like, yeah, I think he's right. I'm willing to take the chance. So the idea was I wasn't going to be as smart as everybody in law school, but I could outwork them. Well, I learned it's wrong on both sides. <laughs> oh, so <laughs> number one, first is I realized I was smarter than what I thought. The second is, is I encountered people in law school that could outwork me day and night. I was just, I'm still astonished at the work ethic of some of my classmates and people I went to law school with. They ran circles around me. Um, but what's cool is you, first year you take all the general classes and everything was, for me, was geared towards criminal justice or being involved in being a prosecutor or public defender. Um, but second year you start taking electives. I remember taking a corporate law class and a tax class. And man, it just, I, something clicked. And I realize now I come from a long line of entrepreneurs. My dad was very business-minded. My grandfather was. But all of a sudden, it's like, wow, I really wasn't interested in the law that was in these cases. I was really interested in how they put the transactions together and how they structured deals. Yeah. And I'm like, but I thought, ah, Wall Street, that's never in my realm of possibility. It's, it's nice to know. But I just found I kept choosing those courses. And so at the end, that's, that's what my concentration was in was corporate law and tax. Yeah. So I'm going back to this small little general law firm and uh, tell people we were doing child custody in the morning, drafting wills over lunch, and then doing you know some type of other domestic relations or something in the afternoon. I wasn't using much of it. But I felt like I needed to practice law. Uh, in this small town because these people had been so good to me. So I did that for a couple of years, but I was an awful attorney. I tell people it was either because I was disinterested and that's what made me awful or I was awful and that's what made me disinterested. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know which. Um, but I was fortunate. I had a buddy who called me one day. We had worked together on, a, on something. He said, would you ever think about being a stockbroker? Where did that come from from him? We had had a person in our church a guy had died. Actually, he was shoveling snow 
for another person and a car came and hit the car that he was shoveling the snow and pushed the car into him and killed him. He was probably in his 30s. Mm. And he was a, a blue-collar guy. I think he worked at Hershey, had a big plant where we were. Well, his, he had been smart enough early in his life to put a, like a $100,000 life, life insurance policy in place. So all of a sudden, this widow in our church has a, you know, her husband dies. She's left this $100,000. And she needs legal help and trying to figure out what to do, and she needs investment help. Well, I knew Dan Grandstaff uh, from church, and I knew he was a stockbroker. And so I called him and said, hey, would you meet with this woman with me to figure out what she's going to do? And we sat down, and I saw him counsel her in ways that I couldn't and didn't know that was really practical and helpful to her. I was like, wow, that's really cool. And so we worked together on that case, and then he got to know me through that. And, you know, he was he was trying to fill his office with guys who would dial for dollars. And so he called me, and I said, yeah, I think I'm into that. So I went into the guys who I was the only associate in the law firm and told all the other partners that I had decided to quit practicing law and uh, become a stockbroker. He thought it was crazy, but <laughs> it was the right move. How so? I think for me, I like, and I think this is some of the sports stuff coming back. And when I say these things, it, I realize it may sound like it's all about the money, but it's not about money. Money is just how you sort of keep score. As I did the math, I looked at it, and I wasn't making any money practicing law. I was still deferring my student loan payments. We had a kid on the way, and it's like, man, there's only a certain hourly rate that this market will bear, and there's so many hours that I can bill. So there's a ceiling. And I learned all these lawyers in small towns, they're not making money practicing law. They're making money because they got in the know of something and they got ahead of it or they were able to transact around it. And then I heard the beauty of reoccurring revenue and the ability to put managed money to work and I could move on to another client, still get paid for the client that I helped before. And if I took my time and I did it right and worked really hard, and survived over a certain amount of time, this thing would have momentum of its own, like creating a business, and there is no ceiling. And I realize now, I didn't like being a W-2 employee. I liked having more control over my destiny, and I liked the idea that if I was willing to do what others weren't, and take good care of my clients, put in the time, and all that, that really the sky's the limit. And so I liked that business model, and I like creating my own book of business, and so, for me, it was a it was a great move that I again would have never anticipated three or five years earlier. So you become a stockbroker, and who were you working with at that point? I was with a wonderful company. It was called AG Edwards, and they don't exist anymore. They got sort of swallowed up into Wells Fargo. It was a family-owned business, and it was just run different from most other firms on Wall Street. How so? Uh, ben Edwards was head of it at that time. And he would come on the squawk box, which we used to have on our desk back in the day that broadcasts all the office. And here's this guy who's heading up this huge firm. And once a month, he would get on there and let any yo-yo or bozo ask him any question that they wanted about the company or anything else. And he would take the time and answer. And the cool thing is, is they had no proprietary product. They didn't want it, there to be any appearance of uh, conflict of interest with their clients, so they didn't create any of their own product. And they did no marketing. The only thing they marketed was Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser on PBS, but they didn't do any, because what they did is they said, why, 
why don't we take that money and put that into supporting our people in the field and they'll be better equipped and better serve their clients that way. And so that was the culture that I got introduced to that business in that I still think is a winning formula, but nobody does it anymore. Yeah. Um, but it was a wonderful training ground for me. And it was, it was the right culture fit for the market that I was serving. And so did that and wonderful times. And that led to sort of the next stage. Which was? Which was, I told you earlier, yeah. it's not that I was smart. It wasn't that I was being strategic. It really was a change in the law. A law was repealed that kept the investment banks from the traditional banks from getting in the wealth management business. And once that law was repealed, then the banks could come in and they could build out their wealth management arms, which is what you see today. And I remember I read an article it was in the Washington Post about how Bank of America was so big that it could basically buy itself into the role and it could wipe out all the smaller folks like the Merrill Lynch's. And I always thought Merrill Lynch was huge, but once you compared their balance sheets and their capital, you realized they are nothing compared to these big banks. And these big, big banks can come in and spend as much as they want for as long as they want to take over this business. Which hasn't really happened. I mean, you know, the big banks do have a good book of business, but you do have these other... Well, Bank of America owns Merrill Lynch. Do they? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I, I immediately said, you know what, huh, if that's where the business is going, I probably need to be talking to banks rather than brokerages. And so that started, and, and what happened is, is at that point in time, the banks, in order to do this, were taking all their old trust departments and converting them into private banks. And so there was a huge need, and I didn't realize it at the time how few of us there were out there. There was a huge need for guys who had their law degrees, who could operate in the trust environment, new estate planning, new trust structures, and then were fully licensed so they could sell product into that. There was, at the time, I think there were 50 of us across the country that were really? sort of, yeah, a small, lot smaller wow. than what I knew. So oh I didn't God. realize how a hot commodity I was. If I'd have known, I'd ask for a lot more money up front. But anyway, <laughs> but I reached out to Bank of America, and I'd wanted to live in Charleston. Um, I'd gone to college there, but we had lived away from there for 10 years. And um, So the whole time after college, you were in Virginia? Yeah, I was back in Virginia, where pretty much where I grew up. And anyway, so that little dance took a little while, but that's how I ended up coming to Charleston with Bank of America Private Bank. And this was early 2000s, and I don't spend a whole lot of time on it, but it, it was a great place to be, learned a whole lot, built a great book of business, great clients, and ended up going from Bank of America, private bank, to UBS, and then 08 hits. And I shared with you a lot of my job, what I realized later on, a lot of my job was dealing with CEOs and very successful executives as they were going through a life change that merger, made, and yeah, merger or acquisition or selling of a company. And while it was good financially for them, their identity was gone. And they didn't know really who they were because now they're no longer CEO, they're no longer founder, and they go through an identity crisis. And my job was really to walk them through that and help them detox from their former identity and, and sort of enter the next phase of life. How are you doing that? I think I was just relying on common sense, and I think probation and parole probably came into it. I think, you know, when I went to the Citadel, it was all male, and so I know how to deal with guys, and I've, you know, been around, and I'm one of three 
boys. So I sort of get the alpha A type personality and guys that are driven and just am able to communicate with them. And I think God gave me a, a temperament that I can pretty much get along with anybody and I like a challenge. And so I think that's what it was. I think a lot of it was just stuff that's in me through my upbringing, God gift and just experience. But the interesting thing is, is, you know, come 2008 and the business that I was doing just disappeared overnight. And I found that I, everything I had been helping those guys with now, I was going to have to try to apply to myself. And that was, that was tough. That was certainly two or three years of very hard time, soul searching, lack of confidence, trying to figure out who you are. But God was so good. He just kept reminding me, you know, it's what I say about you, not what everybody else says. Now, we didn't get into it, but you met your wife <laughs> here. I did. Let's talk about that. Yeah, that that's a better part of the story. Of, the of, professional of, stuff is just... We'll get but, back to the professional yeah, stuff. We don't but, need, yeah, we don't need to. I'd rather talk about God and talk about family and, <laughs> and, and the cooler stuff anyway. So my wife, you know, it's cool. We're, we're really rare. I, we have a picture of us together at her third birthday party. I'm sitting what? next to her. Uh-huh, yeah. What? And how much older are you? We're same age. Okay. Our mothers actually played bridge together, so they were pregnant with us before we were born. They were getting together and all this stuff. And, but yeah, I have a picture. Really? From her third birthday party. I knew, I, dude. I was clued in early. I was getting the seat next to her. <laughs> I was right on. And so we knew each other growing up, but we didn't start dating until I came back from college. And we weren't Christians at that point in time. She was came from a, a tough situation in her family. And she was going to school there locally, and she was just encountering some tough stuff. And we were dating, and I, I didn't know how I was going to help her deal with some of that and what I was dealing with on my own. And her dad, what, I guess things got really tough. I wasn't there. We, we had a long-distance relationship. We weren't together other than when I was on furlough coming back. But her dad said, listen, Tess, I don't know what's going on. He, he said, but, I, but you need God in your life. And she took that, and she asked God into her life and gave her life to the Lord. And, man, immediately stuff started changing. How so? Everything. I mean, she got rid of all the music we listened to. She got rid of all the friends. She got started going to church instead of going to fraternity houses or whatever. Just everything just changed. And I'm seeing this. I'm like, man, I don't know. If, I, don't, I don't know about all this. And so the thing I remember, Mitch would get a kick out of this. She used to send me care packages at the Citadel, and she would write verses all over them. She'd say, Jesus loves you, written big on these boxes and all this stuff. And, man, I'm carrying this thing across campus, and I'm, I'm like, what is Trying to hide what, it. What's, what's going on? <laughs> and so we get in these phone conversations. She'd say, you won't believe what I read in the Bible, and it says this. And I'm like, that doesn't say that. Like my my good Methodist upbringing in Sunday school as a kid, I didn't. So I'd go back and I'd open up the Bible, and lo and behold, she's right. That's what it says. You mean it's gone as far as east to west? It's like yes, it's gone. It's like, wow. So we'd get we'd get in these heated debates, and every time she was right. It's like, and God was just using it to get me into the Word and just convict me and and show His love for me and. So that's all going on the same time as, as the shower incident and all this stuff. And so my wife and I, we, we dated when we both were in the world and, and of the world. But we've also seen this transformation. We came, he pulled us through together. And, 
you know, then we've got married and um, she's just awesome. I mean, she's, she disciples me and I, I say that she's a blessing. Yeah. And I used to tell, I think this is helpful to guys. I used to try to compete with her. You know, I used to think, well, she's having this quiet time, like 5.30 in the morning, and she's doing all I need to be. I mean, I just couldn't keep up. I was just wearing myself out. And one day the Lord said, listen, what's your job? Said, Word says that I'm presenter blameless and white for you, Lord. He said, right. He said, man, you're to create an environment, a safe place, Ooh. Ooh. stable place where she can get as, she can get as close to me as she can get. That's your job, is to get her as close to me, make an environment where she can grow in me. And through that, you will be blessed. You will feel the overflowing and it will come pressed down, running over, over you and the rest of this house. Ooh. And so I quit competing and my job is, is to provide her with the stability and the security that she can go as far as she can go with God. I think some guys need to rehear that because I guarantee you they're listening and they're and something clicked. So restate that and talk about what were the kinds of things that you would do in order to foster that kind of environment sure, for her. Sure. So the message is is quit competing with your wife. Your job is not to compete with her. Your job is to help her flourish in the Lord yeah. and provide the environment, the stability, the security that she can draw as close. You are not in competition with God. Yeah. He wins every time. You want her to get as close to him as possible. And through that, then you will be blessed. So how do you go about doing that? Well, number one, you stop competing. You stop beating yourself up and you realize that your job is in leading your home, you're a servant, server. Allow her to have free time to do these things. Encourage her in the disciplines that she's wanting to do. Go to things with her. If you're not part of a small group and your wife is saying, hey, I think it'd be good, well, suck it up and go. <laughs> and just do, just act in a servant role in loving your wife. And I'm telling you, if some of this is yeah. selfish, is then it is pressed down and running over. It is, is the best thing you can do, not only for your marriage, but for yourself. One of the ways in which I would do that for my late wife would be to... Anytime she wanted to go hang out with a woman from church or go to a women's group, hey, I got the kids, babe. I got the kids. You go. You do this. You go out to coffee. You go. Get your friend time. I know because she was so relational that it just fed her soul and fed her spirit. And so, guys, I'd really recommend anyone listening, figure out what feeds your wife and foster an environment that provides for that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So... 2008, everything crashes. Yeah. How did your wife handle that uncertainty? Because I, I know there are a lot of women out there that they like security and they thrive in that. And when there's insecurity financially, eh, stress in the home can be really hard. Yeah. So part of what happened again, because it was really from 2008 to 2010, it was really no regular job or no steady income. It was pulling from savings or taking some project work or whatever. And one of the things we realized is is that we couldn't continue to live where we lived here in this neighborhood. And so one of the toughest things was as I, and my wife and I had made the decision, well, what's interesting is, is 
about, and this will make sense as I tell it, about two years earlier when everything's going really well, my father called me. I was on a kid's uh, football field, and my dad called, and he said, son, first of all, my dad never called. So it's like this must be, there's something heavy going down. Mm -hmm. And he called and said, son, where's your home? I said, dad, Saturday I'm here at a kid's football game. I got a job here. I said, Mount Pleasant's my home, Dad. That's where I am. He said, that's what I thought you'd say. He said, me and so-and-so, one of the neighbors, said, you know, we thought we were doing the right things by raising our kids up and getting an education. Then we found out they go off and leave, and there's nobody here to take care of us. I'm like, uh-oh, Dad needs help. This is my dad's way of saying I need help. And so I'm hearing that, and I'm trying to go back and forth as much to home to take what happened is my mom had Alzheimer's and my dad was just really oh. in bad health. Oh. And I started going back. Well, then my job just sort of disintegrates. And now I've got time. I don't have any excuses. It's actually cheaper to live back there where they are. And so I'm th- and the Lord's saying, you know, you need to honor your mother and your father. And you need to move. You need to get simple. And you need to move back home and help. And so the hardest thing, and this is where getting into my wife, a lot of women couldn't do this, but my wife was willing to pack up her children and herself and leave all of her support system that was here and move back home so I could be a caregiver to my mom and my dad. And she did it, and she did it well. And the amazing thing is, is we were dreading it. I mean, we all cried in the car pulling out of our driveway here to go back to Virginia saying, we don't want to do this. And kids leaving all their friends and everything they knew. How old were the kids at the time? The kids were, Ethan was, I want to say he was going into eighth grade maybe. So Spencer had been going into fifth. But I can tell you, other than probably Spencer may have a different read on this, it was the best time because we moved back for three years and we moved back into a smaller house. Life got real simple. And it was hard, but it was honoring and, and a privilege to take care of my parents and we just had the best time getting simple. And so what I dreaded actually ended up being probably some of the best years of our life. And there's all kinds of stories around that where we just got really close. I mean, I got the opportunity to, to coach basketball with my kids for several years up into a pretty advanced level that was challenging to me to coach them. And I was spending every afternoon from 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock in the gym with my two sons. What a blessing. And so we're, we're friends and we have all these experiences of traveling to games and who missed what foul shot and who did this and who won what game with them that most dads don't get the, if I'd have been working my regular job and all that hadn't happened, I'd have never gotten that time. Ah. So yeah, good stuff. That's cool. So yeah, so what I dreaded actually ended up being one of the greatest blessings in my life. And what's cool is, is I had the foresight not to sell the house in South Carolina. We just rented it out. And so once both parents had passed away and my business was pulling me back here, we were able to move back into the same house. And the funny story is, is we had this cabinet and the, the mover said, Mr. Early, I don't think it'll fit right there where you want it. I'm like, it'll fit. It was there before. <laughs> it'll fit. It, it does. Um, but yeah, so, you know, we got to spend that time there, but we ended up coming back here and got plugged right back into community here. Just God's been really good to us. Awesome. So you said business was drawing you back here. What business? Yeah, so um, going through 
I would say 08 to 2010, it's just like, okay, business-wise, I've got a good book of business. I've, I've built relationships with families or individuals who have assets to invest, but I don't feel comfortable anymore trading paper, basically, stocks, bonds, derivatives, whatever. I said, I need to find something that... 2008 really shook a lot of people. Yeah, it was, uh, it's, yeah, it was a defining... I think we're learning more and more about how defining it was for a lot of folks. But long story short is... is um, my dad had actually been in, in apartments when we were growing up. We used really? to mow grass. So there's always there's this whole apartment theme that sort of I didn't realize till later on. But anyway, apartments seemed to make sense. And I had some really good friends, um, Bob Faith and Bill Maddox at Graystar, who's a large apartment complex company. And they introduced me to two young guys that had left them with their permission and started another company called Middle Street Partners. And I actually had called them and asked for a job. And they were brand new, and they were being kind. And they said, listen, we don't have a job, a W-2 job for you. But if we find a deal and you find people that have money, we'll share revenue. Oh, okay. So I think they were just being nice and just trying to help, offer help, but really not. I mean, I took that and ran with it. I started calling everybody. And next thing you know, we're rolling. And so from 2010, really until the last two and a half years, it's just been buying and developing large apartment complexes throughout the Southeast mm. and me running my own business, which is what I always wanted to do. So it was one of those things out of desperation. It made me summon up the courage to do what I always really wanted to do. But if it had been comfortable, I would have never ventured out there. But because I was forced to, I was willing to take the risk totally get it. through that. Yeah. Came into exactly what I was supposed to do. And so how do I take that lesson and apply it next time things start to feel a little tough and a little bad? And that's where the whole quitting thing comes back. Because I've learned, I don't don't quit, don't quit. Just You don't want to deal with that. You don't want the regret of that. you got to push through, you got to push through. So you still doing that? Yeah, we're, I look at, you know, I don't want to get too much in the business stuff of it. It's sort of run its course. Real estate goes in cycles. And so we're probably more sellers of projects than buyers right now. And I'm trying to figure out the next chapter. And I'm really trying to figure out, Mitch is helpful in this. Uh, you know, okay, I've been blessed, but you know, it's all going to come down to a 12 by 12 room and a pine box at the end. You can't take all this stuff with you. So how do you take all this that you've been blessed with and figure out how to continue to advance the kingdom. And so I'm in that journey now of trying to figure out how I can use the things that I've been given to bless others. And it's fun. And a big passion for you is men's ministry. Yeah, men's ministry. Being one of three boys, having two boys. Yeah, yeah. I just, I don't, women are too complicated for me. <laughs> guys, are, guys are pretty simple. Guys are pretty simple. Um, no, I just... You know, one of the cool things is, is through my life, I've collected a lot of experiences that are normal experiences that men go through. And so if I can throw a lifeline to some other younger guy who's, I see where he's going, I see what he's into. I mean, I have a real heart for these guys who are, say, in their lower, mid-30s. They've got small kids at home. Their career now, the honeymoon of that's over with, and they're grinding it out, and they're dying and they see life as no adventure. They just see it as obligation from here on out. And they're just, they're quitting. They're quitting their marriage. They're quitting being a good dad. They're throwing away their jobs or whatever. And then I see just an epidemic with younger guys in their 20s 
they just have no idea of what their purpose is or what they're doing. And if I can take the little stories that I've got and encourage them in some way and pull them along, man, that's what I'm all about. Mm. And how are you doing that practically? I, well, part of the lesson I've learned is I used to be the big, what's God's five-year plan for me? Dude, he told me real clear, that's not how he works. You know, Jesus did exactly what the Father told him to do, said what he told him to say, and went where he told him to went. And it was generally at that point in time. So God told me, you just need to be present and be obedient to the Spirit. And if God puts somebody in your path, and I tell you to spend time with them, spend time with them. So a lot of, it's not a program, it's not anything like that. It's just spending time with guys, whether it be old guys or young guys. And I just got a collection of them that, for whatever reason, they've decided to call me and say, hey, can I get lunch with you, breakfast with you? And we just build these relationships. And then, you know, through some organized things through where I go to church, and then Mitch has been cool enough to invite me into some of his men's stuff. But what I'm finding, the more I let go of the plan and the system, and the more I'm open to the presence of the Spirit and being led by it, just let God do a thing. Just, just... Just show up. Just show up and, and be open. And be open. But it takes courage because he's going to cause you to maybe say some challenging things or put you in some weird situations. But just trust him because he's good. I mean, he is. He's never let me down. He's never left me alone. He's never abandoned me. He's never put me. He's put me in where I thought it was over my head, but he taught me to swim and I swim. And I like that. That's adventure. Tell me one of those stories. This is a good one, I think. So we got involved in this program called two by, Discipleship 2 by 2 Basically, concepts are really easy. You take one older guy, and I was an older guy, and you take one younger guy, and you come together once a week, and you just read stories, primarily out of Acts, about all the things that the disciples did. And then whoever's leading the group gives a homework assignment for the pairs to go out in twos and do these things. Go out and pray with a stranger in Walmart. You got to go up to him. You got to tell him, "Hey, I feel like the, and the Lord's got to lead you." But go pray for that person right in Walmart and see what happens. And come back next week and let's report about what we see. And so, that was one of the assignments: was to go downtown in the heart of Charleston and find somebody on the street and just get to know them and see if you can pray for them. And you got a week to do this assignment. And you're supposed to get together with your partner and report in. Well. I hadn't done it. I'd just gotten busy, and I just, I think I was scared of it. I hadn't done it. And so I'm supposed to meet my partner, Nick, at Starbucks downtown. And I'm like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do, man? I, I, I haven't done my homework. And this is just going to suck. Because we have honest conversations. He's going to call me out on chicken, blah, blah, blah. And so I go down there, and I show up at Starbucks, and it's crowded, and you can't find a seat. And I'm like, I'm not going to go in and try to hold a seat for another guy. That's just guy rule number one, you, you know. You don't eat the last piece of pizza, and you don't go into a place and save a seat. You just don't do it. And so I'm like, I'm standing outside. All of a sudden, this dude comes up to me. Hey, man, how you doing? He's obviously, he's living on the street. I'm like, how are you doing? And next thing you know, I'm just having this conversation with this guy. And uh, he's like, you see me, don't you? I said, yeah, I see you. He said, that's interesting. He said, a lot of people don't see me. And we just started talking about the Lord and talking about how good God is. He's blessing me, saying, brother, bless you. you know, Lord, bless you and keep you. And I'm like, brother, same to you, Lord. And we're out there just blessing each other right out in the street. 
And all of a sudden, here comes Nick, my partner. He says, I guess you did your homework this week. (laughs) (laughs) But I think the guy was an angel. You know, it talks about we entertain angels and we don't even know it. Mm -hmm. And this dude, all appearances, outside appearances were that he was needy. Well, dude, he wasn't needy. I was a needy one. And God just put him in my, and he blessed me. Isn't that the, isn't that the way that life works sometimes where, where, is, uh, this where, happens where, to me where, all where, the time. Where, where we go in thinking we're going to do this volunteering or whatever. And we're the ones that come out feeling more encouraged. Yeah. One of the things we got, so I think this is timely and relevant because I'm 56 years old. And so I'm sitting in church and, I sit in a certain area because the, the acoustics and stuff sort of wipe my ears are going wacky as I get older. But I realize I'm surrounded by all these young people, these young couples, young children, all this stuff. And they're just all around me. So when we share the peace, you know, you have to extend the peace to one another. So you actually get to look at them face to face. I just hear the Lord saying, man, these are a lot of young people. You need to get to know them. You need to get involved in this. I'm doing something here. And I'm big about, I, he's giving me an invitation to co-labor with him. And it's like, I'm doing, I'm moving here. You need to be in this. So I go to folks at church and say, listen, I don't, you know, you know, they know me well enough. Listen, this is what I'm feeling since the Lord is calling Tess and I to get involved with young folks. And I don't know how to do that. I don't know what y'all got going on. And so I said, well, good. I think you could lead a small group. I don't want to lead a small group. <laughs> He said, well, we got another young couple that's really struggling. They're, they're willing to lead, but they just need somebody to come alongside of them. So we're like, okay, we'll do it. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, well, uh, here I'll sit with all the wisdom, be like mom and dad, and I'll give them all this great information that they need, and we'll straighten out their politics, straighten out their lifestyle. <laughs> we're going to straighten out everything, just spend enough time with me. You know, you get these thoughts. Well, we go in, and man, these young people... They are genuine, they're sincere, they're asking the right questions. They're asking for mentorship. And all of a sudden, it is, it is speaking to me and it is challenging me. And it's like, man, they are like reading my mail. And God is using these young people to show me all kinds of things. And so that's an instance where, you know, I thought I was going in to give. And, man, I've just been getting, 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 getting. And I love hanging out with them. That's one of the beautiful things I find about Holy Smokes is that... You get these various generations that are all cross-communicating and pouring into each other. And the older generations are getting this perspective from the youth and they're understanding them a little bit more and appreciating what they're bringing to the table. I remember, I'm a fan of Dan Sullivan. He has a program called Strategic Coach in Chicago and and Toronto. And uh, he has a book, a little e-book called My Plan to Live to 156. And it's all about some little bit about his health journey and what, what he's doing to try and live as long as absolutely possible. But one of the things that he says in there is surround yourself with young people. Mm. It'll give you this just energy and this vitality and this perspective and these new ideas. Whereas when someone's in their 60s and 70s, they'll often go to a retirement community and surround themselves with all these people yeah. that are aging. And it just it accelerates the aging process. Yeah. Well, the thing I've learned is... Um, come to the realization is living out the gospel, spreading the gospel, it's a young person's deal. If you're serious about it and you're committed, 
it takes a lot of labor. It takes a lot of energy. And so I've realized I've sort of aged out of that in a way. And it's these young people. And I have so much hope for the next generation. A lot of people putting them down, but I'm telling you, man, there's, there's yes. deep stuff there. Yeah. And they're the ones that have got to do it. And they're going to be doing it through new mediums. They're going to do it through new ways of communicating. And what I'm finding is, is they're, we as older guys, we think we got to make it look cool or corporate or seeker friendly. And man, they read right through that. They want it real, they want it authentic, and they want it true, and they want it given by somebody who's not trying to be cool, but Trump, somebody who's willing to tell them the truth and love them through it. Yeah. And that to me, and so what I'm realizing with my life is, and this is a cool thing, you know, the Bible says to make it your ambition to be an elder, you know. So everybody's trying to end their job. They want to be vice president or president or whatever, but they haven't given any thought to how they want to be realized in their spiritual community. And go look at the qualifications. And I did. And I was like, okay, he's blessed me with meeting qualifications. I'm becoming an elder. And also I had another dude speaking in my life and said, you know, apostle calling. Well, we ought to be striving for that too as us older guys. And this is for me, you're asking where we are, to be supportive of a bunch of different things and be able to, to go in and, and give encouragement and tell your story and give some hope and courage and then bebop over to the next one and do that. And cover some ground. And so that's what I'm about right now is just, Lord, use me and put me in the right place. And, you know, Mitch has been great. And that's sort of this whole cigar bourbon thing. Because we've struggled, a lot of us here in this neighborhood, I've struggled with, well, how do we reach our neighbors and all that? And, you know, Mitch came right in and said, well, you know, I'm going to do this bourbon and cigars nights in the neighborhood. And, man, you're getting everybody coming to these things. And building relationships and leading guys to Christ mm. and getting them out of mm. out of their house and out of their personal prisons and showing them life and love. And I just would have never thought cigars and bourbon <laughs> would, would be such a powerful tool, but it is. Oh, yeah. It's gigantic. Yeah. Ashley Early, let's get to rapid fire questions. All right. Rapid fire. <laughs> fire. Here. <laughs> When did you first try cigars or pipe? That's a great question. Ooh. All right. I, the way you lit up, but there's a good story there with There is. So my dad, how everyone knew my dad and we knew him growing up, is my dad chewed on cigars. Now, there was a time, I guess, before I was born that he smoked cigars. But I guess he quit when the kids were born, but he couldn't give it up. So he spent most of his time on the road in a car, but he always had a cigar in his mouth. Always had a cigar in his mouth. So cigars have always been around. I mean, that's when we were little kids. What do you buy dad for Christmas? You buy him a box of El Producto Blunts. He loved those things. <laughs> Dutch Masters. And so I have, I have wonderful memories as a kid of those cigar boxes and my dad chomping on a cigar. And I know somewhere, probably before eight years old, that me and my brother stole them and actually figured out how to smoke them. So the very first one happened very early, and it surely had to be an El Producto Blunt. But I couldn't tell you exactly when it was. You ever do pipe? I do. I still do. And my dad, I inherited a, a pipe from my dad. He had given that a go for a while. And, and yeah, I love smoking a pipe. I smoke pipes when more I'm alone. Yeah. And I smoke yeah. cigars with guys. Same. 
Yeah, same. I'm, I'm very much the same way. When, I, when I'll go out in the backyard and set up on the patio furniture and do a little bit of work or read, yeah. something like that, that's when I'll pull my pipe out. Yeah, my wife hates cigar smoke, but she can deal with the pipe, so sometimes she'll make me switch up if we're on the porch. But my problem is I chain smoke everything, so I really have to be careful. So, yeah, I can smoke a pipe and smoke pipe all day long if I choose to, but I'm, I try to discipline myself. Favorite cigar and favorite pipe tobacco? I knew you were going to ask that. Because <laughs> favorite, I kept wondering about the word favorite, because that's where I was going to talk. My f- well, you can have a few favorites, huh? Yeah, it's like favorite, like if you could have any one, you know, the best cigar you've ever had. I would probably say the best cigar I've had was celebrating something. It was a Diamond Crown, one of those. And I just remember that was like the best tasting cigar I had. David Office is, is, is good stuff, too. Favorite as far as what I smoke the most is what I brought you, and that's El Rey de Mundo. comes from JR Cigars. That's special to me because my oldest brother was the first one of us to start smoking cigars back when we were in our 20s when we all got together or something. And he turned me on to those. And those have over, what, 20-some years have been the best consistent-tasting burning cigars that I've ever had. This is a really good stick. You gave me one, and this is a really good yeah, stick. Yeah, and they're, they're not really expensive. Well. It, they're just, they're dependable. I started out smoking H. Upman. Um, it was a little milder. And so I have some great memories of, you know, one of them is uh, my first big sale when I was a stockbroker. You know, I left a message on this guy's voice machine. They, all the training tells you, don't do it. They'll never call you back. This dude called me back and he's like, you know, hey, would you meet me in the graveyard at three in the morning to open an account? And blah, you know, just sort of this, will you go to these awesome limits in order to sign this account. I'm like, yeah, I did it. So I closed the guy, got the deal done. It was like my first big account. Come back to the office. And Dan, who is my friend and my boss, he's a little peculiar about his stuff. I'm like, I'm going to smoke a cigar celebrate. So this is like Saturday in the morning. I'm smoking. I had the windows open, fans blowing. We get in a Monday morning meeting. He's like, who in the blank, blank smoked the cigar in the office? <laughs> He said, I hope you have a good reason. I said, yeah, look at the new accounts. He's like, okay, but never again. <laughs> so, but yeah, H. Upman were my go-to in the beginning. I would say more recently, it's, I'll let Mitch talk a little bit about it, but there's a guy here locally who introduced us to some stuff, and now Mitch is sort of taking that over. Mitch, you want to, I don't know if we we'll, can we'll, do that. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that on Mitch's. Yeah, but they're, they're sort of local to us here in the neighborhood, and um we don't have to go very far to get them, and they're priced right, and they're really, really good. So I would assume then that these El Rey Del Mundos are your best dollar-for-dollar dollar stick that you've got. That's your go-to? Yeah, I would say so. I like the Perdermo Lot 23s, typically the Connecticut more than the Maduro. I found that those are good value for the dollar, too. Most expensive cigar you smoked? Probably a David off something or another. Along the way. Where's your go-to place to get your smokes? J.R. Cigars. I hate to say it. But it's becoming becoming Cigar Donkey. (laughs) What's your favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? Oh, Lord. Well, I tend to have to, because of some work stuff, get in the bourbon world. I'm really a scotch guy. So I'd say a Glenfarclas single malt. If 17-year, if you can find it, most of the time it's a 12-year. Most interesting person you've met through cigars? 
My brothers. Ooh. They are the most interesting Ooh. people. I like that. Yeah. Close with them? <laughs> oh, shoot. Yeah, we are. We, Where do they live? They both live in Virginia. We were adventurous, and we fought a lot growing up. And when I say fight, they were literal fights that ended, and then we were all were friends for a while until the next fight happened. So it wasn't <laughs> like any of these long things going on. But it's just funny, as I get older, I see certain parts of my mom and my dad in all of us, but it's sprinkled in different ways. But we all have the same wacky sense of humor that some would find really offensive, but we find it funny because our mom would have found it funny. <laughs> um, and so when we get together, it can be rather volatile, yeah. and we have to be careful, but generally it's the best stories and the best times. So yeah, I would say that. I would say that. Most memorable cigar experience. Ooh, uh, this is going to sound odd. This is about the time I was making some life changes, career. This is in my probably early 30s. And my wife and I, another chapter in our life when I went back to school and stuff, is we lived for seven years at an Episcopal girls' boarding school. And so we lived in a little apartment there. And I remember get, sitting out on the stoop. It wasn't even a porch. It was a stoop with an H. Upman listening to James Taylor, was it Carolina on my mind or whatever that song, and really at that point in time thinking, I need to figure out a way to move the family out of this situation and probably to South Carolina. And I just remember sitting out there alone with that cigar, making some real life trajectory decisions. Mm -hmm. All right, for the non-cigar questions. Yeah. Marvel or DC, or neither? Neither. I have. There's too many real heroes for me to spend much time on make-believe superheroes. You ever I know Star that War? you probably find that offensive. No, not at all. No. Was I ever into no. Star Wars? Uh, Star Wars or Star Trek? Yes. Do you have a preference? Uh, probably more Star Wars than Star Trek. My so I have two sons, a 25 year old and a soon to be 23 year old. And we, I love my kids, and they love Star Wars, so therefore I love Star Wars, and we watch that stuff, and that's, we talk about it a lot. Sports teams? <laughs> oh, well, I once was part owner of the Boston Celtics back when they were a publicly traded company. My mom, one year for Christmas, opened, and this is when I was in high school, opened up each, me and my brothers, a brokerage account because she thought we need to learn that, and she bought us each one share of the Boston Celtics. I didn't realize the bot, the Celtics yeah. were once. Yes. They wow. Were. So I still have my stock certificate. So Boston Celtics basketball, football. I am a Washington Commanders fan, and there's finally, life has come back to D.C. in the form of new ownership, and so starting to watch that. Um, baseball, I'm a Yankees fan, but I, I I was originally a Baltimore Orioles fan, but when they screwed that team up way back when and certain players spit on an umpire and all that, I, out of outrage, switched to New York Yankees and been a Yankees fan ever since. But Yankees aren't making the playoffs this year and the Orioles got a good shot, so I just might flip back for a little bit. Favorite athletes as a kid? Ali's kid, Dr. J. Dr. J, he was special. Oh, it's, mm -hmm. I, I remember my parents got us a Tandy computer in, geez, 87 maybe. And I remember going to Radio Shack and picking up Dr. J versus Larry Bird. Electronic Arts, one of their very first games. 
yeah, Dr. We were, J, Bird versus Dr. J. And I just would play that all the time on that computer. And it was just fun. Just Yeah, I think every book report, everything I had to do in Alder in school was on Dr. J. And, you know, it's interesting because a lot of that, I feel like, first of all, he was innovative in a lot of his moves and things, but it's just the cool factor. And I find it so interesting now, the debate between you know, LeBron James and Michael Jordan and the people who are on certain sides. And a lot of it doesn't have to do with basketball. It has to do with who they perceive as cooler. And a lot of it's generational. And I think, you know, Michael Jordan's got to be one of the coolest guys for our age group. And I think that's what carries the weight rather than who's better. So I always get entertained by those who's better. It's not really what you're asking is who you think is cooler. Yeah, (laughs) I like that. I like that a lot. Do you have a favorite athlete right now that you're really following? And I think God has called me back from some of the sports watching. And this is me, so I'm yeah, just being yeah, careful yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of it is so much about elevating the individual and, and almost a worship culture around that. And over the last couple of years, I've gotten involved in the thoroughbred industry and what I call animal sports. Yeah. And because you're not dealing, you, you yeah. know, it's a different deal. Yeah. And so I would say my favorite athlete right now is Flightline, who is probably the greatest horse of our generation that really? no one has ever seen run, but I got to see him run. Really? Yeah. He was like 6-0. and oh. He missed, because of his Asian everything, he missed the classics, the Triple Crown, but he won the Breeders' Cup, which is, in our world, the Super Bowl. And he never lost a race. And once he had gone through all of those great races and won the biggest one at the end, there's nowhere for him to go but down, so they put him out to stud. But no one ever got to see him run. And he's just an amazing animal. So yeah, Where, where, where did you get to see him run? Um, Breeders' Cup was held at Keeneland last year. And so it's just in Kentucky, Lexington, okay. Kentucky. And... Um, yeah, was right down there at the rail and saw him come from behind and just blow the doors off the other horse. And again, he never lost. It's just awesome. That's rad. That's very cool. Favorite food? Pizza. I wish it wasn't, but it is. <laughs> Dogs, cats, neither or both? <laughs> Dogs, by far. Cats I'm allergic to. I think they're cool, but I just can't have them around. Yeah. Um, Any specific breeds you're really attracted to or either yeah, you've had well, over the years? Mitch's probably laughing. So I've, I've got a 12-year-old lab at home. Yeah. That's like the frat boy who never went home. And I love that dog, but I hate that dog. <laughs> and I am over labs. I'm over somebody having to be up against me all the time. So growing up, we always had German shepherds. So I am, I would say German, if German shepherds and, but I, anyway. I, I once heard a speaker say from the stage, when God created Labrador retrievers, he gave them a brain and then they ate it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Along with some other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Now he's, he's a great dog, but I do sit around and think about how can I knock him off and my children not find out and I can live with myself. But anyway, but he's with me all the time. So this is a nice break from champ. Thanks, Mitch. <laughs> do you have a nickname growing up or in yeah, college? Yeah. Cause you know, my name's Ashley. It's like, that's a hard name to grow up with. If you ever heard the song a boy named sue i would say you know most people don't even know that was my name i came from a long line of earls 
because my last name's Early, my older brother was named Earl. People called him that, and then they called me that. And then I have a little brother, and he's generally referred to as Little Earl. And so that stuck with me all the way through, really, all of school until probably my first real job. What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? I don't know. I feel like I'm a pretty open book. I'm struggling with that one. I might have to call a timeout. Are you a reader? Only when I have to. Do you have a favorite book? Bible. Besides, not, besides the Bible. I know. Um, yeah. Yeah, though, this is going to sound strange. It, Confessions of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins. Really? Tell me about it. You don't want to hear about it. It'll lead you down the wrong, bad road. <laughs> I'll just leave that out there for anybody who's curious. Do you have a life scripture or a scripture that really kind of that that you're really gravitated towards right now? That's kind of speaking. Yeah, to you? gravitating towards me right now, and I'm gonna paraphrase it, but it's really I'm seeing it for myself, and but I'm really seeing it for my sons. You know, as a dad, you're we get caught just like the world does in living, whether we want to admit it or not, vicariously through our kids. So we're always concerned about where are they going to school, what are they doing for work and all that. And what I came to realize is that's really all about me. I just want to be able to have a good answer for the question when they say, so what's so-and-so doing? That's not what the Bible says. What's the Bible say? The Bible says, make it your ambition to lead a simple life, to work with your hands and mind your own business. And if Ooh, God says that like is his, that to make that our ambition, then when I see my kids do that, I ought to be applauding them on rather than wondering why aren't they on some agenda that I've set that really is just all Ooh, about me. And That's powerful. And, yeah. That's and powerful. so then you have to check in with yourself and say, well, are you doing it? Are you living a quiet life? Are you doing anything with your hands? In other words, at the end of the day, you can see that you've actually done something, created something because God's a creator. And are you just minding your own business? And for me... Turn off the Fox TV, turn off all this stuff, and just do what's before you, man. Mm. And if Ooh. I do that, it's pretty stress-free. That'll preach. Yeah, I tend to do that. <laughs> so anyway. Name three things that you're thankful for at this point in your life. My wife, my life, and good friends. I was thinking about friendship a lot coming over here. I've just, I've been blessed with good friends. I went to, and I'd make sure time was, but yeah, I went to something probably two years ago. It's a men's retreat. We were in a group, a small group. And I just assumed that most men had one or more guys that they could call at three in the morning in case they got a DUI to come bail them out of jail. And so we sort of threw that question out there. And I was shocked at the number of men who do not have a friend oh. that they could call in the middle of the night to come get them. And I am blessed with many guys that I could call and they would all come and get me regardless of where I was or where I found myself. Mm. So I'm thankful for friends. If you could be any animal, what would you be? Ooh. I think a flying squirrel. That's just what comes <laughs> to mind. That's so a first. Cool. That's a first. I just it just came to mind. It's just be so cool. You look like a normal squirrel and kid, you know, families, and then all of a sudden you just come. If you've ever glide had one, you come glide glide. In. It's like wow, that is really cool. So, yeah, like flying squirrel. Are you an early riser or a night owl or oh, pretty man, average? I'm I'm an early riser. I learned a long time ago. I get up 
four thirty or five, man, I can knock it out by nine in the morning, and then I get the rest of my day. Now I'm go to bed at eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night, but I like getting it out of the way when it's quiet, getting Ooh, done with it. Yeah, I've been kind of training myself to get up a little earlier because I find myself knocking out a workout and getting ready in the morning. And yeah, yeah. If you could live anywhere, where would that be? I think right here. I'm pretty good with where Char- I live. Charleston's a pretty cool town. Well, I just I want to come back out here and explore a little bit more. Tell you what, I'm I'm seeing is it, it really. I don't want to get too high and lofty. It doesn't really matter what I think anymore. I just know that I'm here, and I and the fields are white around me, and comfort's not a good thing necessarily. But I'm pretty comfortable, and it's just I'm here at a good place, and I just need to live right where I am and not I've spent too much time daydreaming about other places and other things I just need to be happy where I am what's your greatest strength and what's your greatest weakness I think they come from the same place I think my greatest strength is probably my ability to communicate and to build relationships but I also know myself well enough to know that if I'm not careful, I can start to get pride in that and think it's about me and not about the one who's doing it. And so I have to be very careful in that. Now, in the professional world, it made me a good sales guy and I, I think as a good lawyer because I can communicate. But it's a hard thing because you can use it in ways which aren't building up and they're tearing down. And I'm learning that I'm really pretty, I can be a really cynical and judgmental person, and I have no business casting that on people I don't know. Does that make sense? I didn't ramble too much on that one. But I think, yeah. I think his strength and weakness, his ability to communicate is very much a strength, but the weakness is I can take some pride in that and it can lead to a bad place. Who's been the greatest influence in your life? I'm going to give you your biggest influence, I would say, is probably my dad and just how he managed himself and managed life. I would be remiss, though, not and acknowledge. I mean, there's been a bunch of people, but somebody early on was a guy by the name of Charlie Thomas. And Charlie, I worked bridge construction all through college. And it was about an eight-man crew. And there was one guy in there, Charlie Thomas, black guy, who was a pastor during the weekends, and that's really what he was about, and then he worked bridge construction during the week to support his family. And Charlie took me under his wing. I became a Christian. I worked, did that for like five summers. And the last two summers was when I was a Christian, and we used to make fun of Charlie the first couple of years. And he would put up with us. And we'd call him preacher man and all this stuff and give him a hard time. He's reading his Bible during lunch and all this jazz. It could be a rough group. And then when I became a Christian, Charlie protected me. Mm. And he would fight back when they'd say, oh, he's sitting with preacher man. What y'all studying today? And Charlie would protect me. And then Charlie started inviting me to to go on because I had to get a whole new group of friends. I couldn't do the stuff I used to do. And Charlie used to invite me to go with him on the weekends and go to these all-black churches and pretty much carry his briefcase and listen to him preach. Mm. So this is a cool story. And so Tessa and I are courting. I don't think we've been married yet. And 
my whole identity prior to coming to Christ was was drinking and partying. I mean, that's just what I was known for. So one of the things God said immediately to me is I had to stop all that. By the time I turned 21 became legal, I had stopped drinking, and I had no friends. And Charlie and his wife Peggy threw me my 21st birthday party in an all-black neighborhood up on what we called the hill, which was where all the black people, and I was the only white Tess and I were the only white people at my 21st birthday party. And it was this African-American community that invited us into their homes and their small groups that celebrated my 21st birthday with me. That's epic. And that that is epic. And that man was wonderful to me. And um, just so much now as I'm getting older, I look back and think, well, what would Charlie do or how would Charlie handle that? And to the world, he was just a simple guy. But, man, he's up there in the hero category with me. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Who's the first person you think of when you hear the word successful? I say my dad. How so? My dad was very bright, very good with math and accounting, but he didn't have money to go to college. And so he, my grandfather sold farm machinery, so he got into that business. And then he left my grandfather and went to a wholesale. But basically... My dad just did for not having a college education and selling farm equipment, did extremely well, and I think he managed it well. And I remember when he passed away, went in to clean out his stuff, and basically his stuff, just his stuff, was like some cheap watch, his high school ring, couple shirts, couple pair of khakis and shoes, and I look around, and my mom and all of his kids, we have everything we ever not only needed, but we wanted. That man, everything he did was not about him, and he gave it away, and it made it so easy on us in the end because he had already given everything to us. There was nothing that we had to worry about anymore. And he did it, and he gave it away. What do you do for self-care? To rest, to recharge? Man, I tell you, I wrestle with it. it and Mitch probably will resonate with this. Because if you grow up playing sports and then you grow up sort of in a military environment and then you grow up and then you're in an environment where you where you get real credit or street cred if you just you know burn it at both ends, the concept of self care to me is I wrestle with it because my whole value system is based on you spend yourself for others and a good man at the end has nothing left. But I know that that's out of balance. I know that's wrong. So part of me is how do I incorporate this idea of self-care and being a steward and really fighting a spirit of rebellion in me that says, I ain't doing that. And I'm not very good at it. Mm. You know, part of the story we haven't got into is, you know, I I suffered cardiac arrest uh, five years ago and had to be brought back to life. And that changes things in a big way. How did it change things for you? Well, it's just a wild story that basically I believe that I am walking in the power of the resurrection. Now, most people would say, well, if that happened to me, that well, people used to say to me, well, God's not done with you yet. He's got more for you to do. That ain't true. God's choosing to let me engage him in this current realm a little bit longer. He doesn't need me to do anything. And I'm looking forward to when I can see him in all his glory. So there's part of me that longs for heaven because I've been there, I've seen, I've experienced what I've experienced. 
but I also realize I'm here and I'm in overtime, so just don't screw it up. Because if you've played sports, you realize you don't always carry that same momentum into overtime that you carry during the game to get to overtime. And you can really get blown out in overtime. And so for me, it's how do I take this and not, because I'm tired, because I'm getting on, and not lose the momentum and all of a sudden I get blown out in overtime. Mm. Um, so I hope that answers your question. What did you experience? You said you experienced something. I want to hear that. You want to hear I, it? I want to hear it. How long can we go? Let's go. This is an amazing story. Let's go. All right. Wow, you're going to get this the whole the first, package. This is, I think this is the first for the this one podcast. All right. This is really good. So um, <laughs> this is not the first time I've shared it. So it, I'm sure it's going to sound like, wow, he's thought that out. Well, God's part of this experience is the ability to share it. So I have never had any real health problems. I mean, I think I may have had high blood pressure or whatever, but so I'm in my early 50s and I haven't had any reason to think that uh, I have any reason to worry, no problems. And I go to, this is, this is great, so I go to a function, it's a ministry function one night, and the guy whose house it's in is like the leading cardiologist at MUSC here. And he's just a really high-regarded cardiologist. So I go to his house for dinner, and we get done with that. We come home. Tessa's going on to bed, and I'm, I'm getting ready to crawl into bed. And this thought comes in my mind of, you know, if I were to die tonight, would everything be all right? And I started thinking, you know, yeah, I, we're in a pretty good place. I've sort of, I'd be okay if I died tonight. And I don't have those thoughts a lot. I mean, it's just like yeah. how the blue. It's like, yeah, I can rest tonight. I'm not, everything's good. It's so about 3.30 in the morning, I wake up and my hands are, are really hurting and my feet are really hurting and I don't know what's going on. All I know is I just can't sit in bed. I got to keep moving to keep the pain away. So I go down and I have a home office and I go down to my office and I'm sitting. The only thing that I can do to relieve the pain is just shake, is just shake my hands and my feet. And I just prayed, Lord, I don't know what's going on, but and I believe in healing. I'm like, Lord, you know, take this, it, it, you know, just help me get back to sleep. So I went up, went back to sleep about 6.30. I wake up, and again, the same thing, except it's getting real intense. And Tessa, who's already up having her quiet time at like 5.30, um, says to me, she said, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I am, but listen, I may need to go to the emergency room. I don't know what's going on. There's something going on. So be ready in case, I, it's Friday morning, the last thing I want to do is sit in the emergency room. And so I'm holding it off and it's really hurting. And finally I went to my wife and I said, listen, I think we need to go to the emergency room. And she said, well, I've already called the ambulance. And Steve, I'm, I'm sort of pissed. I'm like, oh man, I don't, what are you doing? The neighbors are all gonna wake up and all this. We enrolls the fire truck, of course, and then the ambulance and now my, I guess he was 18 at the time. My youngest son's still at home. He's like, Dad, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. I don't know what your mother's overreacting, all this stuff, whatever. And I see the guy, they hook me up with my heart stuff, and he sees the readout, and he folds it real fast and sticks it in his coat pocket and says, we're going downtown. And I'm like, that's odd, because the hospital's right across the street from where I live. He's like, no, we're going down to the medical university he said, do you think you can walk yourself to the ambulance? I said, yeah, I think I can do it. So we got out, got down, got in the back of the ambulance. My wife's on the front porch. My son's there. 
And then the door shut. And the next thing I know, someone is screaming at me saying, did you feel that? Did you feel that? Did you feel that? I'm like, who are you? And, and the best way I can describe it is I was asleep. And that's key later on. I was like asleep and I was like having a dream, but it wasn't anything painful. It wasn't anything. I was just asleep and they woke me up. And instead of being in my bedroom, I was in this ambulance and this woman is, she's really anxious with me just saying, did you feel that? And she said, we had to use a defibrillator on you. I need you to stay with me. I'm like, okay. That was out again. The next time I come through, it's full on. And I know exactly where I am and I'm dying. And I think I know where we were. We have turn circles here, but all I can tell you is what you would imagine like a helicopter going down. They are cutting at my clothes. They are ripping things, you know, containers open with their mouth. They're jabbing me with stuff. The stuff is swinging inside the ambulance. I hear the sirens and we are just going. And I see clock, I don't know if it's actually there or not, but there's a clock on this wall in the back of the ambulance. And I'm like, if I'm going down, I'm going down praising God. There's not going to be any doubt. And Steve, I can't tell you whether it was audible coming out of my mouth or whether it was in my head, but it was as loud as I could as, Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe you're the only begotten son. I believe, you know, and I'm just praising the Lord. And I'm like, if it's going down now, these are the last words out of my mouth. Mm -hmm. And then, boom, I'm out again. Third time I come around, I'm in deep water. And I can see that clock up at the top. Still in the ambulance. It's still in the ambulance. But it's like, it's just thick. And it's just like, I just got, and it's like, man, I just want to stop. Just rest. And it's like, no, I got, you know, I got, got to fight. I got to get to the top. It's like I got kid, you know, start start thinking about my family and all this stuff. It's like I gotta get there. I just gotta get it's, but there's part of me that just wants to stop and just rest. And I'm like, ah, oh. so I go and I break through and it's like whoosh. And they're like, You're back with us. We need you to stay with us. What you I'm like, ask me about my kids, ask me about my kids. And so they just so the nurses and they just start talking to me about my kids and stuff and kept me awake, kept me there. They had used the paddles on me 14 times. They'd burnt part of my chest. These are people I didn't know, and they went through this with me, and I haven't seen them since. They saved my life in the back of this ambulance. Then I get down to the medical university, and this is a fun part of the story. I think it's fun. I get in the ICU, and, you know, the family's been in, and doctors, and finally I'm alone. And Mitch knows this part of the story. I'm like, I'm really pissed. I'm like, I didn't, Jesus, I didn't see you come through the clouds. <laughs> I didn't get this picture of you coming in the mist. And I think what I was saying was, where were you? And all I can tell you whew, is all of a sudden these memories. It's like a film rolling real fast. These memories of when I was a baby in the nursery at Dayton United Methodist Church and these women caring for me. These flannel board characters on those things from Sunday school where they told you the Bible studies and the songs and all this stuff. It's just, it's like stimulus overloads just coming in. And it's like, oh, you've been with me all along. And I felt the Lord say, listen, for some people, I need to come that way because they don't know me. And so I need to show up that way. 
because I'm wishing that none should perish and all should go. He said, but for you, I've known you your whole life. Believe what you believe. Believe. Trust. Just believe. And I just repented right there and said, Lord, I'm sorry. You're, you're right. I said, while I love experiencing you, I also need to be okay just knowing you and, and trusting you and believing what I believe. And as soon as I confessed and got that out, my phone starts lighting up. And it's these people that were in these visions. It was, you know, one person I know in particular. I told you about this third grade teacher. It was her daughter who I hadn't talked to since high school. I said, hey, we just heard what happened. And I want you to know that mom's thinking about you. And all this just confirmation and love is just coming back on me, man. I was just undone. So I come out of that and it's like, okay, where do you go from there? And part B of this story is, is so they told me, okay, something, it's genetic, something you've had your whole life, and it's probably surprising you didn't die in your 20s from this. It's what these basketball players and folks, athletes die from, where they're in really good shape and they just collapse. So the fact that I made it to 50 plus is a miracle. If it had happened on the way to the hospital in Tessa's car, I'd have died right there. The fact that it happened in a controlled environment where they had a defibrillator saved me. So I'm a walking miracle. And this thing's genetic, and what they say is, listen, you can't do any physical activity other than walk and all that. You, so my life, and adrenaline was really bad for me. I had to change everything about that. And so I'm like, okay, so I get to have excuses for not taking good care of myself and all these things. I didn't think that way then, but I'm thinking that way now. It's like, huh? Good, I, I can really take on this victim status. Well, every year I have to go back to MUSC, Medical University of South Carolina, and they do a big workup on me. And then come in at the end of the time, and the doctor says, okay, you know, this is what we see. And so for four years went, and, you know, they kept seeing the same thing, large ventricle wall and keep the same regiment. Then, not this year, but the year before, I go in, and it's great, his name's Dr. Judge, and he's wonderful. He's got this huge smile on his face. Like, hey, Doc, what's up? And he said, all I can tell you is your heart's normal. I said, you mean like normal, like it hasn't increased? And he said, no, it's normal. I was like, all right. Uh, he said, it's not a function of your medicine. It's not a function of your diet. It's not, because you know, I hadn't been doing it. I hadn't been taking care of myself. You know, it's none of this. It's just, he said, I, I, we're not going to do anything different. But all I can tell you is your heart is normal. And I walked out of there and I just said, Lord, I have seen you heal other people. I've prayed for healing, but I never even prayed for it for myself. Mm. And you've done it. You've done this thing. And I didn't even ask for it. Mm. And I felt the Lord said, it's who I am. It's what I do. And while I like for you to ask for it, I don't need you to. And then I had another brother. It may have been you, Mitch. Somebody said to me in a loving way, he said, Listen, just because you weren't praying for healing doesn't mean other people weren't. Mm. I was like, oh, so it's not all about me. <laughs> You're probably right. This is bringing glory to God through other people. And it's like, and so I go through that event and I'm trying to process that. And then I have to deal with processing the healing part of it. And um, it's been a cool, cool adventure with God and living the resurrection life. How do you want to be remembered, Ashley? I don't know that I do. I think there was this guy, you know, maybe to remember me like, there's this guy I knew, and I can't remember who he was, but all I know is all he was about was Jesus. 
and he introduced me to him or showed me something. And so I just want to fade away, decrease, and allow him to increase. Ooh. And I would say I want my sons to remember that I loved God and love them. That's probably how I'd like to be remembered. All right, final three questions. Oh, wow. You're digging deep. What does Holy Smokes mean to you, and how has it contributed to your spiritual journey? Well, I have to tell you, the, the name of it from the Mennonite upbringing or influence, I was like, ah, well, that's a little, so I'm, I'm struggling with that a little bit. I think this is the concept, and again, I've seen it lived out with what Mitch is doing here and in my interaction, is creating a safe environment for men to be men and to enjoy something in moderation that breaks down, I don't know what it is about cigars and you know, we should need these things, but they break down these barriers and we're able to get real and get vulnerable. So Holy Smokes to me is a really good way for men to engage that through this medium and hopefully encourages it to do it more in community where they find themselves. If you could have a Holy Smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus. This is great because Mitch gave me a heads up. So <laughs> I would say probably Paul. I just want to hear about the journeys and what he saw. I would say the second one is Bob Marley. Ooh, that's a first. I want to hear this. Well, I figure he probably knows how to smoke. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I was drawn to, I, I can tell you when it happened. If y'all, y'all are probably old enough to remember, but you go in a convenience store and there was stacks of cassettes that you could buy for like 99 cents. Yeah. And just for laughs and giggles, I would always buy one. And I remember Scott Wine was probably with me. We bought one. It was reggae. We never heard of reggae before in our lives. And it was high school. <laughs> and we put in that cassette and it changed my world. It changed my music. It mm. toots and the Maytails and, and, you know, Bob Marley and the Whalers and all this stuff. And so I just got on this kick. And um, I've been listening to a lot of Bob recently. And with Spotify, it's really opened up some music yeah. that I've never really dug into. And yeah. it's, just, it's just cool to it's listen just, to. It just on, cheers. On it's very high. spiritual. Very yes. Spiritual a spiritual guy. He was concerned about others. I think he lived a pretty simple life, and particularly his last days when he had cancer, how he carried that out. But also just the music and stuff, it just makes me smile. And I just think, again, maybe cool registers too high with me, but it's sort of the same thing with Dr. J we were talking about. I just think Bob Marley is probably one of the coolest guys who, he wasn't trying to be cool, he was just cool. And from fashion to music to life, I just think it would be really cool to sit down and smoke a cigar with him and just get his perspective on things. And then the third would obviously be my dad. Um, I think it would be a real hoot to, and probably include my brothers in that, just sit down with him and smoke a cigar and let him smoke one rather than chew on one. <laughs> All right, final question. If we're to meet one year from today and I got a good bottle of that 17-year single malt, Yep. What are we celebrating? I hope that we're celebrating that Holy Smokes has taken off and the feedback that you're getting back from men is, man, this is, this is giving me communities, also helping me create community. And we are seeing people flourish in the power and the presence of Jesus Christ. Ashley Early, 
Thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. This Thank was you. awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hey, everyone. I wanted to announce that we have Holy Smokes gear. That's right. We have swag. We currently have hats, shirts, stickers, like for your vehicle or your travel humidor, magnets, even branded bourbon glasses for a limited time. Go to holysmokes.club and click on the shop tab. That's holysmokes.club. I'm super proud of the shirts. They're made with Bella Canvas shirts that are soft and incredibly comfortable. The hats fit wonderfully, which can be a problem for those of us with big noggins. We plan on having a lot more to offer, like Guayabara shirts, additional t-shirt designs, beanies, polos, hoodies, cigar accessories, and much more. Check it out. And even if you don't make a purchase now, be sure to sign up for that email list, as I've thrown a couple big discount coupon codes for those exclusively on that list. So click the shop tab at holysmokes.club. Thanks. Thanks.